When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, if I can find what I've written. Hello, this is Colin Schindler. Welcoming you to another podcast in the series allegedly wittedly, if erroneously entitled, Football Ruined My Life, which it hasn't really. Certainly not as far as my two companions in microphones are concerned. John Holmes from Leicester, now resident in Nottingham, Shire. Paddy Barclay from Dundee, now resident in southwest London. And of course, I'm a Mancunian, who last lived there when Harold Wilson devalued the pound the same season that Manchester City won the league championship. So we've all seen a lot of football, including, of course, the World Cup tournaments of 1966 and 1970, about which we made a podcast in our first series. But today we're going to talk about the life and times of the manager of those two England teams, because his life and career extended either side of those two seminal dates. He started as a right-back from Southampton um, for Spurs and for England. Paddy, you're our senior fellow. Did you ever see Alf play? And if not, when did you first come across him? I never saw him play, no, because he finished in 1955 at Tottenham. I was eight at the time and living in Dundee. So, no, I didn't see him play. But I first came across him as, well, when I was a journalist, and he was manager of Birmingham, I think. But I never never got to know him the way that my journalistic seniors did. They had a sort of fairly prickly relationship with him. He treated them as if they knew, most of them as if they knew fairly little about football, which was fair enough compared with him, they did. But I would have liked to have got to know him, you know, got the chance to know him because he was such a great football man. And I think the respect in which he was held by the England team, I know it sounds like a truism nowadays in that everybody imagines that the football teams are the creation of their managers, but it certainly was true in terms of the great England teams that he managed. John, what was your initial response to Alf? Were you always a fan? I was always a fan. I mean, I wasn't a journalist. I wouldn't know him professionally. But I was a supporter and I thought he was a great man. Well, he won the World Cup for us. And also he performed this miracle at Ipswich. You know, not many sides have done this 
moving up from the lower divisions all the way through. Yeah. I mean, he took them up third, second, first. The only sort of equivalent you've got from third, second, first is recently Leicester, of course. Oh, really? Which is in a completely different era. Forrest moved from second to first and won. They did it in two seasons. I think Ipswich had one season where they didn't win, didn't they? And uh, then they moved up. Yeah. They were fortunate in having this sort of benign, bizarre ownership of the Cobolds. You can't really separate Ramsey from the Cobolds. The Cobolds were brothers who seemed to come out of a cross between P.G. Woodhouse and E.H. <laughs> Benson. And the stories for them would actually fill a book. People like the Cobolds, who were eaten, educated, sort of minor aristocracy, meeting this boy from Dagenham, who apparently, when he was at Southampton and Spurs, was a real Cockney geezer. Yeah. And then went to Ipswich. You know, the Cobolds would have talked a completely different language to him. Mm-hmm. He was socially aspirant, let's put it like that, in the way he spoke and everything else. And he wasn't that popular when he started at Ipswich, but they allowed him to get on with it. And unbelievably, with a ragtaggle of a side, he won the league. Mm. I remember that he had an outside left. And it's interesting to compare him slightly to because you've just brought up Brian Clough. Clough worshipped John Robertson. And as I remember, Alf's big innovation with his Ipswich side that won the league in 62 was the use of the left winger Ledbetter. He was significant in providing the goals for Phillips and Crawford, who were the two main strikers. It's interesting you make the comparison with Clough, of course, in that Clough did worship Robertson. Robertson, one of, I think, one of the best players I've ever seen. The idea of the dual-footed left winger, a player who could cross instantly. There were a lot of wingers who like to beat people multiple times showing off. They would always wait for the cross. Robertson crossed immediately with either foot. When he got half a chance, he banged it in. David Ginola was a nightmare for centre-forward. Correct. Because yeah. he had to turn back. And by then, the defender was favourite to win the ball. And that was the great thing about Robertson. Because he is a man whose reputation has... It's come late in life. He was so underrated while he was a player. You mentioned he was two-footed, of course, which was one of his great assets. Also, he couldn't run fast, but he trundled quickly. <laughs> in other words, if he, if he needed to steal the half yard, he could. We've diverted from Ledbetter, but Ledbetter was what Ramsey built that first Ipswich mm. side around. And yeah. also these phenomenal Crawford and Phillips. Phillips, who had apparently... One of the hardest shots in football. He was a yep. bit of a throwback in that respect. And also the joker in the pack, apparently. His right wing was a fellow called Roy Stevenson, who came from Leicester, who I don't remember at Leicester being much good at all. But Ledbetter, Crawford and Phillips, mm-hmm. Phillips, who was there all the way through, mm-hmm. they were what that side was all about. The others, I, I honestly, I don't remember exactly. many of his other players. But Ledbetter was adjusted when Ramsey went in. I think he was an orthodox outside left. And Ramsey withdrew him and played him more or less as an inside left, but a creative inside left. I mean, a lot of inside lefts. Ted Phillips was probably an inside left, wasn't he? He was a second striker. Yeah. Yeah. But Ledbetter played 
just that little bit deeper. So we would call him a number 10 today. Yeah, that, is that how it's sort of 10 and a half, 11, really. But anyway, it worked incredibly well for a while. They won the league, which was... Everyone had thought that Tottenham would win it again. I mean, Tottenham were yeah. by yeah. so far and, and, the and best Bear, team in the land. They were, and, Bear, and they won the Charity Shield game 5-1, the, the season that Ipswich won the league. But John mentioned that they went from third to first. I think younger people listening to this ought to be aware that third was all there was because it wasn't a fourth division. It was a third north and a third south. And Ipswich came from the third south. So they came from the very lowest rank to become champions in a matter of four four years. Something like that. I mean, Ramsey had marked himself out early as an exceptional manager. Looked at through that prism, it's, it's fairly easy to see why if the FA were going to get a proper manager ever that they chose him to be the first. Was there a, a lot of problems of Ramsey wanting to choose his own side? He was the first England manager that did, and yes. Walter Winterbottom didn't. John, do you know anything about the mechanics of the FA, of, of, of how Ramsey bullied them into accepting the fact that he was going to choose the side and not these, well, these nonsense? The, the FA were in a bit of a mess. Having not entered the World Cup until 1950, yeah. they'd been unsuccessful in 54, in 58 and 62, and they were losing games left, right and centre, and they hadn't got many alternatives. Nobody would take the job, and Ramsey came in and demanded it and got it written in his contract. Yeah, I mean, all this goes back to the struggle, doesn't it, between the league and the FA and the fact that you got selectors and so on and how clubs moved on, how mm-hmm. Ramsey became a proper manager because he got this benign, as I say, directors who absolutely did not interfere. Mm-hmm. I don't think John Cobbold knew anything about football at all yeah. and was terrified of his mother, who was the um, patrician figure. Lady Blanche Cobbold, yeah. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. And he, as the elder brother, took over. They appointed Alf, who was really, really pissed off because he'd been frozen out at Spurs. He really wanted to be manager of Spurs, of course, but he didn't get on with Jimmy Anderson. He didn't get on with Bill Nicholson. And he especially didn't get on with Danny Blanchflower. Mm -hmm. So he got frozen out when they made Bill Nicholson manager and was picked up for some reason by Ipswich. And lo and behold... He conjured up this side that came from nowhere to win the league with a side containing virtually... Was there an international in that side? Roy Bailey was the goalkeeper. I remembered another one. Gary, Gary Bailey's dad. Gary yeah. Bailey's father. Yeah. But I don't think there were any internationals even in that side. Now you get sides get relegated or full of 11 internationals. Yeah. Chelsea have 35 internationals <laughs> and can't get out of the second bit of the... Um... <laughs> this was 1960. He won the league with Ipswich in 62 and became manager. The first game he took was a 5-2 defeat in Paris yeah. by France in yeah. January 63. Yes. What was going on between the end of the 62 season when he got the job after winning the championship and the fact that he didn't take it for another six months? What was going on? They were in the bottom half of the table. Yeah. They'd, the they'd, be, they'd been twigged, so they were struggling. But such was the relationship and the trust and honour between Ramsey and the Cobbold, the owners of Ipswich, that Ramsey, as well as insisting on everything else, he insisted that he would stay with Ipswich to see them through 
the travails of the post-title season. That's correct. And the Cobbolds were known to say, they said, well, we don't have any board meetings. Yeah. And they asked them, why don't you have any board meetings? We said, well, we do once a year. Yeah. He said, what happens if there's a crisis? Oh, we don't have a board meeting at all. Right? <laughs> um, well, no, the, the answer to the crisis was Cobble said, the only crisis we ever have is been run out of white wine, wine in the, the boardroom. Board. There was also at the cup final when Blanche Cobble, the mother, was asked in the VIP section, would you like to meet the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable James Callaghan? And she said, you know, I'd rather have a gin and tonic. <laughs> Interesting, Ipswich appointed Jackie Milburn afterwards, failed, uh, which it, didn't yeah. work out. They then inspired Pick. They picked Bobby Robson, who'd failed at Fulham as manager. Mm. Mm. Of course, Robson led them on again to great heights, and he went on to be another successful manager of England. Before we leave Alpha uh, Ipswich entirely... I want to ask the question, you know, we three remember those three players, Ledbetter, Phillips and Crawford, but they didn't move on. You know, unlike most successful players in a successful side that was quite small mm-hmm. in stature, they didn't move on. You know, Everton didn't come in for them. Spurs didn't come in for them. No, no. The, the, the three players rather had that moment of glory and then rather disappeared. But Alf went on to bigger things, obviously. But was they a creation of Alf is my question. Yes. There was a centre-back called Andy Nelson, wasn't there? Yes, Andy Nelson. I don't know if he was the captain. He was the only ever present in the title season. They got him from West Ham, apparently, a central defender. But the other names of that side, you know, we can name the Tottenham side. We can name the Burnley side. We can name a lot of the Everton side. But the Ipswich side, we can name Ledbetter. Because yeah. of this peculiarity, yeah. the side was built around him. Yeah. We can name Crawford, we can name Phillips, I can name Roy Stevenson, yeah. uh, Roy Bailey and Andy Nelson, but that is it. Yeah, you're quite right. The Burnley team that Ipswich had to overcome, that tripped off the Blacklaw, Angus Elder, Adamson, yeah. blah, 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 all the way out to probably Pilkington. The Spurs team, of course, Brian Baker, Henry Blanche, Blanche, Norman Mackay, yeah. Jones, White, Smith, Allen, Dyson, you know, I mean substitute Markey, probably, although they weren't substitute. But yeah, they'd trip off the tongue. But you're quite right, that Ipswich team, yeah, it's like a quiz, yes, it's quiz a, question. So it, it does suggest that Alf knew what he was doing, that Alf created yes. something very special. It, he created something, but bear in mind that the kind of detailed coaching, we live in the era of Pep Guardiola, we're accustomed to tucking in the full-backs or whatever. But what Alf did, in making a jigsaw puzzle out of that team was very new. Mm. That was something Matt Busby couldn't do. You would have thought that then he, he would have got on very well with Danny Blanchflower. They were both very good thinkers about the game. Yes. Why do you suppose there was this? A stand, I mean, My guess would be, you know, Danny was a whimsical man and Alf was... Not whimsical. Not a whimsical <laughs> man. Yes. There was a clash of personalities there. They were so different in terms of that whimsicality, which Danny couldn't resist. So I guess that Alf had a wee suspicion that Danny was taking a piss out of him after that. Blanchflower continued through his column, which he wrote himself. He was one of the first sort of players to have written a column himself. And it was very, very well written. Continued to be uh, scathing about Alf all the way through. It was quite an enmity there. And Alf's relationships with Tottenham, where he was a very good player... Interesting, he also got on very badly with Ted Ditchburn. There was a real uh, row between he and Ditchburn over various things. 
I think Ramsey made a very bad mistake in a cup semi-final or something like that, which mm. Ditchburn always blamed him for. Alf didn't leave Tottenham in good odour. He was a very... I mean, he lived in the same house almost till he died in Ipswich. He was a very ordered man. He distrusted the FA so much he used to take all his papers away at the end of the week in case anyone saw them. But he had this perception of a side and putting it together. And he distrusted, by and large, flair players. I mean, he distrusted Jimmy Greaves to a great degree, even though I think he admired Jimmy Greaves' talent. Jimmy Greaves said, you know, he got on okay with him, Mm -hmm. but he distrusted his mentality. He never liked that sort of player. You know, he put Roger Hunt in, who was, in terms of talent, nowhere near the talent that Jimmy Greaves was. Nor was Hurst. in ahead of him. Jeff Hurst was a workman-like player up front, but again, not the sort of player. There were more talented players knocking about. And I suppose, in a way, the wingers that we've talked about, Peter Thompson, magnificent winger of that era, not trusted by Alf because he didn't fit Alf's pattern Mm -hmm. and they weren't part of the team ideology. Pattern's the word. I mean, if you try to draw a link between Alf's England team and his Ipswich team, you've got pattern, haven't you? Not the best players, but you've got a team structure that could withstand a campaign. The whole of English football was affected by Alf's last game as an England player which was in the 1953 6-3 defeat by the Hungary. And, of course, he scores the final goal. He goes up and strikes the penalty to take it from 6-2 to 6-3. And he never plays for England again. We know that, that so many coaches, Malcolm Allison predominantly, from my point of view, yeah. were hugely affected by that defeat by Hungary in 53. How did it manifest itself with Alf? Because he couldn't not be affected by that terrible defeat. He lost his place and never got it back again. I mean, that game, was it televised live? The second half was televised live. Ken Wilsonham's on the commentary. If you play it on YouTube, it's Ken Wilsonham. And he starts at the beginning by looking at Pushkas doing keepy-uppies in the centre circle before the kickoff. Mm. And he's saying, you know, well, look at that all showing off stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't yeah. stand for much of that round here. <laughs> They'll soon learn what proper football's like. And then, of course, they were one down in 45 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> But Alf must have been affected, but he didn't become, as John said, he was affected adversely to an extent by not trusting flair players, even though Hungary was full of flair players. Hungary had team structure, they had innovation, and they had flair players. They had everything, that team, as they proved at Wembley. But the idea that English football had a eureka moment and learned from the Hungarians is a little bit simplistic. There was a huge debate after that. And people like Stanley Cullis, who'd been a a pioneer of European football through friendly matches at Wolves, didn't sort of suddenly say, you see, they've got it right and we've got it wrong. And Alf didn't suddenly say, yeah, we need to have tactical flexibility, technique and, and all the things the Hungarians did. Whether Alf didn't go down that route because he didn't believe in it or whether... I mean, some coaches did. Uh, Matt Busby, for example, that Hungarian team was his favourite football team, full stop, apart from the Busby Babes, obviously. But a lot didn't. A lot thought, well, yeah, that's all right, but in the end, English directness will will out. But in Alf's case, it may well have been 
not because he disparaged the Hungarians, but because he didn't believe that within his lifetime you could alter the mindset and attitudes of the English footballer to produce a Sibor, Hidekuti, Pushkas et al. He liked Bobby Charlton. Bobby Charlton was one of his main players, wasn't he? And he could have played it in the Hungarian Bobby team. Moore and Gordon Banks, they were his, what he built the team. And Ray Wilson, of course, yeah. who was a spectacularly good player. The bit that I think is interesting is, I've said in the World Cup 1950, 1954, 58, 62, England hopeless. Yet there was still this belief in England and in Scotland to a degree, mm -hmm. that ours was the best football. Mm -hmm. And you, Paddy, said, well, the best England team ever was the Johnny Haynes team. Yes, definitely. That, uh, the reason you say that was because they beat Scotland 9-3. I mean, I don't want to bring that up again, but... But no, come on. That's not the full story. I know you're only trying to wind me up, John, and everybody listening will know what you're up to. But they also scored seven against Austria, eight against Mexico in that run, Four against Spain. Four against Spain and another eight against Luxembourg. Okay, that makes Scotland marginally worse than Luxembourg. I'll take that. I'll take that. But it was a great team and I still am absolutely convinced it was the best team. It was mainly because of the forward line with all due respect to Bobby Robson, Eddie Clamp and Jimmy Armfield. Actually, it was a very good team, full stop. But the forward line was Brian Douglas, who, yeah, yeah. the right winger from Blackburn Rovers, who, in my opinion, is one of the most underrated England yes, players of all really. time. Jimmy Greaves, number eight. Number nine, Bobby Smith. Yes, he was a traditional English up-and-atom centre-forward, but he could play. Oh, he could play, and he could score goals. Then you have Johnny Haynes, in my opinion, the best passer ever played for England. Yeah. And outside left, outside left, Bobby Charlton had to play outside left because there was so much talent all along that line. But the point I'm making is... We'd never done any good in the World Cup. And actually, in European terms, I think we will never know what the Busby Babes might have achieved because no, of the no. Munich air crash. But we hadn't really embraced European football. Our exposure to other sides was only during the World Cup, and we hadn't done that well. No. Now, Alf clearly realised that the problem was that when they got to the World Cup, yeah. The selectors, as they were, who were mm -hmm. FA board members, yeah. came in and started interfering. There was this question of whether they actually knew whether Eddie Hopkinson yeah. or Alan Hodgkinson yeah, yeah. was the best goalkeeper. Eddie Hopkinson played loads of times for England. I'm not sure he was a very good goalkeeper. He was very small, wasn't he? And Colin McDonald played for a bit. It was supposedly... People say, oh, best goalkeeper in the world. How on earth did they know yeah, yeah. if these people never got to the World Cup? Well, Alf, that's why he obviously had some idea that the whole thing had to be a team and properly put together. And he set out to win the World Cup. And said so. He often regretted that along the way. Mm. And it became a rod for his back because when they, every time they didn't win in the run-up, yeah. you know, people said, oh, yeah, oh hopeless. So this and is the best All that the sort world. of thing went back. I mean, the press had started to get more aggressive mm -hmm. in those days about the England team. But then he put this side together and they were very much, as we say, in his mould and left out a lot of the more talented players and put it together as a side. They were, of course, completely loyal to him. 
and they remained completely loyal to him, which in the end was his undoing, because as we've discussed, when it went wrong in 1970, and then went even even worse when they were undone by the Germans and the new style of coaching and so on, and the German and Gunter Netzer, who was a player. Gunter Netzer would never, ever in a million years have played for Alf, would he? No, no, he didn't like Tony Curry, he didn't like Rodney Marsh, he didn't like <laughs> Frank Balls, Worthington. Frank Worthington, all those players were not to, to be trusted as far as Alf yeah. is concerned. But I want to re-emphasise that between January 63, when he has his first match, and July 1966, when he wins the World Cup, most of that time, Alf was harassed, hounded, disbelieved, traduced by the press and by the public. He was not regarded as, you know, we didn't think we were going to win it at any point. There was a turning point, now in retrospect, where they went to Spain and won 2-0. Yeah. Was that Alan Ball's debut? It was certainly yeah. early on in Alan Ball's career and he seemed to make a difference. But they had been a very good team, as Paddy points out, in 61-62. And then when Alf's appointed, they struggle for three years. It came together in the end. But can we agree that, that, that Alf might have known what he was doing, but it took him quite a long time to get there? Yes. Of course, because to get this concept recognised was difficult. Do you mean the concept of wingless wonders? Do you, is well, that... I think to get a playing pattern and to get the players to buy into it as much as they did was difficult. Yeah. He did have a love-hate to start with with Bobby Moore. You know, Bobby Moore was a bit flash and Bobby Moore was a bit of a high liver mm-hmm. at one stage. Even though they both came from East London, Alf's relationship with Moore went up and down. But in the end, they were, of course, very, very close. Uh This is the thing. I mean, I I spent 40 years studying team building. And at the end of the 40 years, concluded that I knew nothing about it. Because (laughs) if you look at, at team building in the context of World Cups, it all seems to be three, four years of chaos. And then it all comes together. Sometimes it doesn't even come together in the group stages, as was the case with England. And then click after the final, you think, oh, mastermind. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it isn't as haphazard and it'll be all right on the night as it looks. But it's it's an extraordinary business of trial and error, I would say. That would be about the only thing you'd notice is testing players, testing players, and not revealing your team until the end. England didn't play like wingless wonders even. Were they wingless wonders a year before the World Cup? That's not my record. No, they had wingers in the World Cup. They had Ian Callaghan and Terry Terry, Payne and John Canelli. They all played for England. Yeah, but Ian Callaghan was probably not what you'd call a classical winger. Terry Payne was. And who was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Connelly. Connelly. John Connelly, who was a super player. He was a proper winger, could play on either wing. And, and in, in actual fact, the wingless wonders probably wouldn't have won the World Cup without a de facto winger in Alan Ball, who, although he was to make his name as a midfield player, played outside right in the World Cup final. You've made a very good point about these sides coming together yeah. and in people emerging at the last minute. Jeff Hurst hadn't played for England. He made his debut against Argentina and scored. Mm. So things do emerge right at the last minute and people can lose their first game, as happened, of course, recently. I mean, Argentina, 
their first result. And the recent World Cup was not the best. It comes together at the end, doesn't it? Yeah. But what it's built round these teams and what Alf built his team round clearly was he needed three or four world-class players. And he reckoned that Ray Wilson was a world-class player, Bobby Charlton was a world-class player, and Gordon Branks was a world-class player. Bobby Moore. Bobby Moore. Bobby Moore, and, yes, and sorry. It, it, it's only a, an opinion, but I think he, you know, world-class might be a bit strong, but I think he totally trusted Jack Charlton and was never yes, let he down. Yes, he did. And was he never did. let down. He hated Jack Charlton. They had rows. Oh, God. All the time. All sorts of rows where Charlton answered back and Alf, in his strange terms, said, any more of that and you fucking well won't play. <laughs> well, Bobby Moore used to sit on the back seat of the coach, back seat, not up front with the manager like Jimmy Arnfield did when he was captain, but he sat yeah. in the back seat and would sing during 1966. They would be thinking, what's it all about, Alfie? Yeah. Yes. It's a deliberate way of poking him in the chest. Jack Charlton and Alf did not really get on. There was a very strange relationship between them. Yeah. He was a maverick always jack mm-hmm. interestingly the only one really of that 66 side who went on himself to become a successful manager none of the others became but successful if, but managers. if jack charlton the manager had had jack charlton the player in his squad he'd have been having a row with him three times a day <laughs> but jack liked having rounds didn't he? <laughs> i mean he he was the man notoriously kept the black book the other flair player we mentioned who didn't get into the England side Peter was Osgood. Peter Osgood. Yeah, yeah. I knew you were going there. Uh, yeah. Who Jack notoriously also hated. <laughs> but it was a, a mixture, that side, mm. of the North and South. Mm. Whereas I think previously what had happened in England sides, they were mainly composed of Southern players. You know, we used to say the FA board, which was, you know, the old yeah. FA. Yeah. And the football league was in the North. And yeah. You've got Alan Hardacre, who didn't want England to do anything yeah. in the World Cup. He certainly didn't want them to play a European competition. No. Wasn't he quoted as saying, after we won the World Cup, it'll make no difference mm. to us, mm. which was obviously complete nonsense mm-hmm. because crowds did shoot up yeah. after 66 and the nation fell in love again yeah. with football. Mm-hmm. I want to push on slightly towards the end because unlike, say, Bobby Robson, when Bobby Robson left England, after a, six, a pretty successful 1990 tournament, even though he didn't win it. Mm. He went on to great things. I mean, he had another, what, 12, 15 years of top-level successful management. Yes. Alf left England, and he had sort of six months at Birmingham City and nothing else. I mean, how is it possible? He went to Greece, didn't he? He was at Panathinaikos. Yeah, it, it never worked out for him. In some ways, I think he was a bit broken by what happened, I think. Yeah. In 70 and 72, it clearly went wrong. And I think we have to accept that football then did move on from there. And Alfred not grasped that it had moved on from his time. His England team, like a lot of good club teams, they all got old. Banks, you know, had the car accident. Bobby Moore had made the mistake in the qualifying game in Poland. George Cohen... Didn't play much after the World Cup. Ray Wilson had gone after 66. Mm. Peters was the only one who stayed there as a player supposedly ahead of his time, but ran out of time almost in terms of England by the time 74 came round. I think Alf was a bit unlucky at the end in that they ran into an exceptional team in the shape of Poland. They were nevertheless incredibly unlucky not to get the extra point they needed against Poland. 
on the night of Jan Tomaszewski's heroic display, although Tomaszewski had the pleasure of meeting him many years later, and he, he said, I wasn't particularly good that night, you know, it was, it was all goal line clearances. Hardly made any saves. No, the and, ball kept hitting him. Yeah, <laughs> yes. He says, the ball, I would either hit me or somebody would help me out by clearing it off the line. He said, I was all right, but nothing special that day. I had many better games than that. But if you look at the stats, I mean, shots on target, England must have had 20. And yet still got the one-all draw that's, that knocked them out. And that Polish team, of course, went on to finish third in two successive World Cup. Kazimierz Dana and Lato and Gadosha on the wings, Gorgon at the back. It was an outstanding, of course, Tomaszewski. It was an outstanding Polish team. Yeah, but in the 72 European Championships, Germany had completely undone them. And that German side, of course, way ahead of England mm. then. But, you know, you talk about uh, Bobby Robson had a fabulous career after leaving England. But Bobby Robson was one tough man. And if you look at England managers generally, I'm thinking of Graham Taylor, I'm thinking of Glenn Hoddle, I'm thinking of even Terry Venables, that their post-England's careers were never quite as good as the careers that got them the England job in the first place. And therefore, maybe Alf should be seen in that context. But he had won the World Cup. What I'm saying is he never really cemented his place in the hearts, certainly of the press, but also of England supporters. Somehow there was something about Alf that distanced, uh, deliberately, he distanced himself from the emotion. I mean, my favourite quotation about this is that when Jeff Hurst's third goal, England's fourth culminating goal, went in, they think it's all over. Mm. Alf, you can see on the bench, pulling Harold Shepperson down, saying, sit down, Harold, stop making exhibition of yourself, I can't see. Yes. (laughs) He was an incredibly stuck, not stuck up, repressed. Yes, repressed. They said about Alf that he came from very, very humble surroundings. Alf would never talk about his background. He was never featured on This Is Your Life. He would never go into it, anything like that. He was always very, very Private man. reserved and so on. And he would never mention his family. As I say, there was this guy who then went to Tottenham. It wasn't the Arsenal he went to. You know, they were aristocrats with the Hillwoods and, yeah. and so on. He went to Tottenham, who were a more sort of traditional side. He clearly wasn't... <laughs> clubbable in the sense of even football clubbable. He didn't particularly get on with his teammates. There's nobody you say, oh, he picked this guy and took him around as coach. He didn't even pick up players from Tottenham. And then he got picked up by the Cobbolds. It must have been a a world that Alf's thrust into that seemed to him a million, million miles from his background. And it meant that he could retain this sort of air of uh, secrecy and so on about it. You know, he never trusted the people at the FA, of course. His relationships with the dreadful Sir Harold Thompson and others on the FA board were never very good. They didn't like him. They didn't get on with him. He felt that they'd never really adequately looked after the players after the World Cup. He was wanting to look after his players, his team, and so on and so on. So he was a very repressed sort of individual. And probably aware that people, we've mentioned Danny Blanchford, that people used to talk about when he was at a dinner, no thank you, waiter, I don't want no soup. (laughs) Having said all of that, he was responsible for one of the great 
sayings of all time. The Prestwick Airport one. England went up for the grudge match, the annual grudge match against, which happened to be in Scotland. The, the, the squad arrived with their blazers at Prestwick Airport and Alf emerged first from the cabin of the plane and at the bottom of the steps were the grandees of the Scottish press. And I think it might have been either Jim Roger or Jimmy Sanderson. These were huge figures in Scotland. And as Alf appeared, they said, Welcome to Scotland, Sir Alf. And he's replied, you must be fucking joking. There was a time during the World Cup of 66 where he took the players, because they were getting bored and they'd been locked up for six weeks, he took them to Pinewood Studios yeah. to watch the to watch Bond film being made and including Sean Connery. And at the end of the conversation, he said politely to Connery, well, thank you very much indeed, scene. <laughs> but he was a massive fan of Westerns. Yes, he was yes. absolutely crackers about Westerns. He took the side to see Westerns, and his hero was John Wayne. Uh-huh. I remember Peter Chilton telling me that Alf announced on one occasion he was taking them to the cinema a new Western called Hang Him High. <laughs> <laughs> I think we probably know what Alf's politics were as well. I think we know which way he would have voted in the 2016 referendum. I think there's no question that, that he was a Englishman first and foremost, and believed yes. very strongly in Englishmen yeah. versus foreigners. I yeah. mean, that was kind of how he saw the world. He would have been against the Hannibals in the Falklands War, wouldn't he? Oh, he'd have been down there fighting them, I think, <laughs> or directing the troops. Still waving George Cohen's shirt at them. I'll, tell you, yes. I'll tell you what, that wasn't, that wasn't nice, you know, that quarterfinal. I'm sorry to say this to you English lads, but it wasn't very nice the stuff that went on around that quarterfinal against Argentina. But we were the injured victims, Paddy. We weren't the... The the Argentinians behaved very badly. They just went out, actually, to fight England. Yeah. And Ratting was... You know, you might even have offended Nobby Stiles. Oh, come on. Nobby Stiles was a one-man assassination squad. And he would do it to Eusebio if, if Man United were playing Benfica. Why would he have changed the habit of a lifetime when England had home advantage, referees on their side, linesmen as well, by the way, in that World Cup? Why would he not take the opportunity to cause a bit of trouble? There was the clash of cultures. Yes. If you remember, that's, the, that's the, the truth Portuguese also in that World Cup destroyed Pelé. Yeah. And you don't associate Portugal with being assassins. No. But... Brazil were in a peculiar state yeah. in 66. Pelé's reputation in World Cups, of course, 58 is brilliant. 62, he didn't play because he was injured. 66, he was kicked out of it. And probably in 70, the view was he was passed. He needed, it, he needed a good World Cup. <laughs> and boy, did he have some World Cup then, and which was probably prompted by the fact that the previous Brazil manager with whom Pelé did not get on, was replaced at the last minute by Zagallo, yes. whom Pele had played with. Yes. And suddenly that side burst forward and we all say that's the, the best side ever. It is. So this bit, the point you were making early on yes. about sides emerging during the World yes. Cup, as England did, I mean, the early games were stuttering, but the game against Uruguay, yes. the first game that England played in that World Cup, nil-nil, and it was a really, yeah. really boring game. Yeah. And it was only Charlton scoring that goal against Mexico yes. that lifted the whole thing. But talk of the greatest team of all time, the Brazil 70, and you're not going to get any argument on that. 
brings us neatly back to Alf because, of course, we haven't we've been a bit light in this conversation on his superb team, arguably better than the world champions that he took to the World Cup in 1970, and yet was criticised for his substitutions in the fatal game against West Germany after England had had, you know, I would say 50-50 share of a classic match against the greatest team that ever lived. England 1970 were, were close. Did Alf understand substitutes? Well, you've mentioned everybody was out to get Alf and just because he was paranoid doesn't mean that the press weren't out to get him. I thought the criticism of the substitutions in the quarterfinal against West Germany was a little bit of wisdom after the event. Well, the point is that when the German wingers came on and destroyed us, Grabowski, they, like they knew what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was also a factor in that game was that Beckenbauer had been very quiet and was to a degree in awe of Charlton. Yes. Charlton came off, Beckenbauer was liberated. Yes. In a sense. Yes. Beckenbauer scored before Charlton was taken yes. off. Charlton yeah, but was he taken was liberated after the goal. when Charlton came, yes, came off. But he became very influential. And, and also with the other factor that we need to take into account and talking about the narrow margins is that England were crucially weakened in goal in that game. But yeah, yeah. came in, obviously wasn't ready. To, and, you know, Uwe Saylor took advantage. Benetti yeah. had had the most brilliant FA Cup final against, against Leeds. Leeds yeah. He'd kept them in that first game at Wembley yes. before the replay at Old That's Trafford. Right. Mm. He'd kept them in it. Mm. Leeds were all over them and Benetti kept them in it. Oh, he wasn't a bad goalkeeper. He was not up for that game. It was a big shock. I mean, even up until the morning of the game, mm. they thought Banks would play. They even had a fitness test. He came through it, Banks, then went back to the hotel room as violently sick yeah. and that they, they knew... Then the game was up. So probably it was the sort of last-minute nature of it, Maybe. which was clearly unfortunate. John, do you, you were an agent for Peter Shilton. Were you agent for him when Shilton was playing under Ramsey at the end of Yeah, the... I was, yeah. And what was Shilton's view of Oh, of he was Ramsey? very loyal to Alf. Shilton has a remarkable World Cup record. Mm. He played in England's World Cup build-up or finals all the way from 70 when he was one yeah. of the keepers but not taken. Yeah. To 1990. Yeah, when he played in the third, he bowed out in the third place match. Yeah, correct. Who was the third keeper in 1970? Stepney. Stepney. Was it Stepney? Mm -hmm. Bernetti was the logical choice, not Stepney, to be number two to Banks. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Alf would have put him in, not thinking he was going to have the kind of game that he actually had, obviously. The other thing you have to say was, Alf was extraordinarily lucky. I mean, we got the World Cup at home in 66 through Rouse's chicanery with uh, Avalanche. Avalanche. And we played every game at Wembley, at home, in effect. And we had quite a, I would say, advantageous draw. And playing all your home games at that stage, you did do well. Having said that, previous hosts of the World Cup hadn't done particularly well. I think there were only two uh-huh. previously that had won. Yeah, Brazil lost on home soil, albeit right at the end against Uruguay. Sweden got to the final. Got Sweden to the final, only to come up Switzerland again. didn't get to the final. Chile. Uh, Chile. Chile. And Chile got to the semi-final with one of the yeah. most violent games that, that ever yeah. existed, wasn't it? Yeah. 
I think the other winners at home were Uruguay, were they? Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't that much, but I did think that was going for him. I mean, you've alluded to refereeing decisions, Paddy, which is a bit mischievous. Things. I, I do think that Ratin was rightly sent off. I was actually at that game. Yeah. And I was standing quite close to it or sitting quite close to it. It was clear to me that Rattan was out of control, trying to control the game. You're absolutely right. They lost their heads. Yeah. And the referee in his memoirs and so on said that he had absolutely no choice but to send him off. They had some very good players, Argentina. That was the extraordinary... Uh, Rattan being one of them. Yeah. Super player. What do we feel about Alf now? The people who never knew him, who weren't teenagers as we were when England won the World Cup, he's just a figure of, in history. Over and above just the winning of the World Cup, which is a separate issue to an extent, mm. was he a great manager? Yes, he was a great England manager. He won the World Cup and produced the second outstanding team in 1970 that fell short. I would say, yes, he was. I think that history will be kind to Robson and Southgate, rightly so. But to win a World Cup, even with home advantage, and you put that into context earlier, I think that makes you an England great. Whether that makes you a great manager to compare with the Busbys, I'm not so sure. But as an England great, no question. A statue. Is he worthy of a statue? Yes. I think you've not said much about Ipswich there. Sorry, I should have done. You're quite right. Yeah. I mean, he won the league with Ipswich, who are not a side. Never won the league before. They've never won the league subsequently. They have won the cup subsequently on one occasion. And they did have a very decent side and punched above their weight under Bobby Robson, who would be another candidate for one of the great England managers. Yes. But the success has not been there in a bit like Walter Winterbottom, who came before, were England actually any good at all? I mean, we all say, <laughs> yeah, we had all these great players. We had Matthews, we had Finney, we had Lofthouse, we had Lawton. But we actually won nothing. And we played a lot of sides who hadn't developed. The Germans didn't really have a league put together until the Bundesliga came on. Football's a team game. Germany, as you say, they didn't have a professional league when they started winning international tournaments. But one thing that Germans have got is they understand teamwork. The British, and and, and I'm talking about people stereotypically here, and I'm conscious of that, but there are some nations that are better at combining than others, and the English and the Scots are two of the worst. This is to do, surely, with the fact of this split between the FA and the league. The Germans at one stage, the Bundesliga, all teams had to play in the same fashion as the international German football is and always has been organised on the basis of what's good for us. In in other words, the antithesis of the remark that was ascribed to Hardacre is not going to make any difference to the league. And maybe Hardacre wasn't wholly wrong there in the sense that our English football has always been factionalised Whereas the football of other countries, some of them young countries, Croatia, for example, teamwork's natural to them, perhaps partly because of history. Sweden, teamwork is natural to them. They're brought up on it. Germans, it just comes more naturally to some countries than others. There's a distrust of management. Yes, and this is where it brings us back to ALF, because ALF changed that. 
And that's why he's a great... And does he stand comparison with Jock Steen and with Shankly and with Busby and those undoubtedly great managers? He deserves to be in the envelope with them. If you ask me, he would probably not be in the top three of those. But he definitely deserves to be in that envelope. And, you know, that's why he deserves his knighthood. It's a little bit about our class system as well, mm. in that what you found from the FA, who were basically comprised of the upper classes, the ruling classes mm. and so on, that they have always distrusted this sort of working class solidarity. Mm. Alf is an interesting figure coming from where he came from, Dagger. as I said, ashamed of his background yeah. and so on. But he trusted, he, he served in the army as well. He put together a team and it was done as a team, whereas previously they didn't trust teams and this sort of working class unionised solidarity. They were the people that stopped the wages rising and all the rest of it. They were the ruling class. Alf came as an upstart a bit like a trade union leader, put this team together in opposition to his bosses. He never liked his bosses and beat the world. Yep. But in the end, they got him. They got him out. Whereas they previously had Walter Winterbottom, who'd just done what they said, you know, pick Hodgkinson, pick Hopkinson, don't pick Finney today or what have you. He's getting a bit aggressive about his wages and Matthews is a troublemaker and all this sort of thing, which you know was going on yeah. at the FA. Whereas Alf was this upstart figure. Maybe that's why he liked Westerns. You know, Westerns were all about the sheriff who stood up against the town, yeah. weren't they? Yes. The John Wayne figure. Yes, John Wayne never uh, played an old Etonian, did he? No. He might have shot me. <laughs> I think we all felt that impulse. Anyway. Yeah. The loyalty that Alf showed to his players, a very considerable, significant element in his success, and the loyalty that, conversely, that the players felt to, towards him, didn't extend to, to Alf being at any point one of the boys, did he? I mean, he, he was absolutely the manager. And I want to yeah. finish with the classic anecdote that's always told about Alf, but it does tell you a lot about him, with Jeff Hurst, mm -hmm. who at that time was England's primary goal scorer, saying after one successful Wednesday evening... Thank you, Alf. See you next time. To which Alf would all very reply, if selected, Geoffrey, if selected. <laughs> which tells you a lot about Alf, really, and the nature of that relationship. He was his own man, and we give him credit for that. He has been, and possibly may well be, for our lifetimes. We saw Alf win the World Cup when we were in our teens. I think he may well still be the only England manager to have won the World Cup when we are gone from this earth I hope not, I hope there's somebody else but it may well be, and to that extent if to no other, we say thank you to John Holmes, we say thank you to Paddy Barclay, and we say thank you to Alf for giving us at least that moment when England were champions of the world Colin thought it was all over. It is now. <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network.